This is the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore. It's a pleasure to welcome Professor Dean Job to the program. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, thanks. Dean Job is a journalism professor at the University of King's College up in Nova Scotia. He's also an award-winning author and investigative journalist. We're here to talk with him about his latest book, Empire of Deception, the story of a Chicago swindler, a man named Leo Koretz. I've really been fascinated uh, in reading this uh, book, uh, Dean Job. Uh, I had just recently watched the Bernie Madoff uh, made-for-television movie on, uh, well, on TV. And there are really a lot of similarities. I mean, Leo Koretz basically ran what they typically call a Ponzi scheme. Well, that's right. And actually, uh, I've called uh, Leo the uh, Bernie Madoff of the 1920s. Uh, There's, other than him and uh, Madoff, there are uh, no examples I know of anyone who kept a Ponzi scheme going on the order of 20 years. They're just so hard to sustain. And some of their methods were very similar, uh, treating their investors as if they were lucky to become involved, as if they were part of a, uh, of a club, if you will, and, uh, and also uh, just uh, uh, promising and delivering uh, returns that just were impossible. But uh, somehow uh, people believed they could, uh, they could do it. In fact, I, I might, if they, they had a legislature for words, I might nominate Koretz to, to replace Ponzi as the, as the, uh, <laughs> the person to, whose name was associated with this sort of thing. What was it, Charles Ponzi? He, he did the same kind of thing, but he didn't operate it as long as Koretz and Madoff did. Well, uh, of course, the Ponzi scheme is named for Charles Ponzi, who for less than a year in 1920s Boston uh, convinced people he could double their money in 90 days. Um, the interesting thing, as I found as I researched courts, was he started a full 15 years earlier in 1905, running uh, progressively bigger and bigger versions of the Ponzi scheme. And uh, when actually when Charles Ponzi hits the headlines and this... Uh, Rob Peter to pay Paul kind of swindle where you're taking in money and paying out investors, previous investors from that money and there's no asset, comes to be known as the Ponzi scheme. Um, Leo Koritz's investors are so hoodwinked and they believe in him so thoroughly that they jokingly call him our Ponzi, <laughs> not realizing that the joke's on them. And uh, I think a case could be made that... Uh, if you can cheat a swindler, uh, Leo Koritz uh, got cheated out of uh, the infamy of it being known as a Koritz scheme. <laughs> uh, tell us a bit about uh, Koritz in his early life. He was born in Europe, was he not? He came over from uh, what's now uh, the Czech Republic in uh, the 1880s, part of the huge immigration uh, to uh, to America and uh, specifically to Chicago. Uh, grew up... Uh, in uh, in a, an area of Chicago, a German neighborhood, his family was German-speaking, and was the only one in his family to finish high school at a time when that was uh, 1% of Chicago uh, children would finish high school. So he was very much the, the sort of star and hope of the family, uh, Horatio Alger kind of uh, attitude, and put himself through law school at night, and, uh, you know, turned out to to seem to have a bright future, but uh, the future couldn't come quite fast enough for Leo, and uh, well, that's when he started stealing from his clients. 
And uh, he uh, married a woman who, uh, and Leo Karras is Jewish, and he married another uh, a Jewish woman, and they lived. They ended up living in, in a really good section. They, they called it the Golden Ghetto as opposed to the ghetto. Right, yeah. And a little bit of a step up for him. And he goes out and starts practicing law in 1905, and by his own admission, the money just wasn't coming in fast enough. His his wife uh, grew up in a family that was well enough off that they had a, uh, that they had servants. He wanted to make good. They had a child on the way, so he he said he dipped into dishonesty. A client who wanted an investment, he said, "Well, I've got one for you." He forged a mortgage, sold it to the client, used some of the proceeds to keep paying the interest to keep the client happy, pocketed the rest, and what he had done that early was a mini Ponzi scheme and. And when he needed more money, he went back to the well and did this to other clients. And he said after a while, he was just in too deep. He was churning out fake mortgages like streetcar transfers, and he could never make it good again. So what he did try to do, I guess, uh, is uh, he became very good at pulling this kind of confidence trick. Mm. And ultimately, um, he was hoodwinked himself and that's what brought him down to uh, uh, Panama or to Central uh, Central America where he kind of hatched his biggest scheme. Yes, and this says something about uh, uh, just how he backed into this. Uh, he didn't set out to become this career criminal or, uh, or one of the most uh, uh, successful con men in American history, but once he got into it, uh, he obviously determined to be the best he could about uh, 1911, he uh, hears about through a friend about an investment in Timberland in Panama. Panama is on the, the radar for Americans because of the canal zone and the building of the canal. And he and some friends, he, he conduces some friends to go in on this. When he goes to Panama, he, founds it's, he finds it's all a con. He lost his money. He lost some money for his friends. But by the time he got back, he... Uh, he said he now had the big idea, and the big idea was he would do this con himself, but do it better. So then he starts floating the idea that he is a front man for a syndicate of multimillionaires who control vast areas of lucrative timberland in Panama and starts selling shares in this syndicate. And he calls the syndicate Bayano, right? That's right. It was a remote area called the Bayano River. It's down the coast from Panama City. And this is, as I said, people had heard about Panama, but it was very much like the surface of the moon in most people's imaginations. It was so remote and uh, so exotic and so untouched that people would believe there were vast resources there. And with the American investment in the canal zone, it seemed like this was a potentially good place to uh, to invest. And then Leo really rode that little... Um, that little bubble that surrounded all things Panama right about the time of the uh, First World War. And the, at first, the, the idea was supposedly uh, they were harvesting uh, fine wood like mahogany uh, in Panama. I believe at some point in his scheming, he he put on his desk made from the first log from Bayano or something like that. But right. and. So they, they anyway, they did that at first. Uh, timber was supposedly what they were harvesting, and that was of great use to railroads uh, for railroad ties. Well, that's right. And uh, the, the nature of the, and this was doing quite well. I mean, Leo was 
living the multimillionaire lifestyle with a suburban mansion in Evanston outside Chicago. He had two Rolls-Royce limousines to get around town, uh, entertained generously, gave to good causes. Of course, all of this being stolen money, but he very much played the part, and people came to believe in him. But by 1921, he was facing the same problem every Ponzi schemer faces, is how do you keep it going? You're not generating any money unless you get new people coming in the door. Unless you get the new suckers, you can't pay out the uh, the dividends and interest that are needed to keep your existing investors happy. And so in 1921, he said, well, business was dropping off. He needed a new angle. So he decided to discover oil on his phantom property, <laughs> which sets off a new speculative rush. Even more people want to get a piece of this uh, of this bonanza in Panama. Yeah. So it goes from uh, mahogany to oil. And I'm just fascinated by how he convinced people to invest uh, and and as you say, it uh, it's a lot like what Bernie Madoff did, or the same kind of style, if you will. Uh, th this may sound awful in a way, but the first people that he swindled were, were like his own brothers and his wife's family. I mean, people who he really knew, but there was a reason he did that. Well, he said later he had to, because people would be suspicious. And uh, whether that's just trying to... Uh, uh, rationalize the fact he robbed his wife, mother, <laughs> brothers, and in-laws. But uh, this became a very effective tool for him. Uh, some other investors said, well, you know, they were asked later, why didn't you check into this? Because it was, it turned out to be such a fantastic story he was spinning. There was no oil produced in Panama, yet he said he had thousands of barrels coming every day. But investors said, well, why would I question him? His whole family was invested. So it became a good marketing tool, but Leo uh, really uh, championed or, or uh, 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 perfected the art of negative salesmanship. Mm -hmm. He could claim afterwards, and he could claim rightly, that he deterred a lot of people from investing. He turned them down, but this was just a ploy. It made people that much more desperate, so he'd play hard to get and sometimes send checks back to people who are begging for, for stock. And this only made people want to invest more. And it only convinced them even more that it, it had to be legit. And a very effective thing. You think a con man would take every cent he could. Well, Leo turned that on its head and used that to his advantage. Mm. We're talking about the book Empire of Deception with author Dean Job. It's about Leo Koretz, who ran this uh, long-running Ponzi scheme in the early years of the 20th century. And uh, as you were saying, uh, negative salesmanship, uh, he um, made the, the shares hard to get, would refuse to uh, grant somebody the, the right to have one, but then ultimately... Uh, if they pleaded enough or maybe put up enough uh, money, he'd take it. And with the dividends, I mean, the, the, the flaw in the whole thing is he, he's paying these exorbitant dividends, which he can't afford to keep paying. But using his uh, charms, Koritz uh, uh, is able to convince a, a certain number of the people that he gives the dividend checks to to simply reinvest them in the, uh, the whole Bayano enterprise. Well, that's right. If if the goal is to uh, uh, keep enough cash to keep investors happy, what better ploy than 
to convince people or to allow people, if they were interested, to to take all of these phenomenal profits and plow them back into more shares means he doesn't have to pay out that money and he can use it to placate people who do want to take their dividends. And, uh, yeah, it was just an amazing uh, uh, ploy within a ploy, I guess. And it really allowed him to conserve the cash he wanted. But it also said something about how, how trusted he was, that that people thought, well, this was the best use of this money. And after he strikes oil, in order, in order to, to really uh, create the kind of cash flow he needed, he was paying an amazing 60% interest. Uh, so it, it's the kind of return that should have been a red flag. Uh, it would be a red flag, you'd think, to most investors. But don't forget, this is the early years of the Roaring Twenties. It's the whole get-rich-quick mentality that leads to the crash of 29. Leo was really plugging into that. And for all these investors knew, he was exactly what he said he was doing. And that's how um, it seems amazing. But in all those years, no one ever second-guessed him. Mm. Well, I think it's a good point you make about the 1920s. I mean, there's a lot of kind of uh, chancy or or a lot of swindles uh, out there then. One, um, I was reading this section of the book, one thing that kind of uh, I thought was such a nice uh, touch, I mean, you from uh, your researching his life, this, of course, is uh, the period of prohibition. And I guess Koritz wasn't much of a drinker, but he knew that people liked to, to drink. Uh, so when he, he got the oil scam going, he had rented these lavish uh, quarters in a new hotel in Chicago. And when the people came up there, uh, he had it well stocked with booze and wine, uh, which I don't even know if this was illegal. It probably was illegal in terms of him getting the stuff, but he didn't sell it to them. He gave it to them. So people always knew they could have just the, the finest when they visited Leo Koretz. Well, this was all part of the the showman's touch, that, yes, he would have the finest wine, the finest spirits uh, for people to toast their success. He he rents a suite overlooking Lake Michigan in uh, the Drake, which is the the new best hotel in in Chicago. And this is the suite where he would huddle with investors, and they would look at blueprints of the facilities in Panama. They would look at his latest contracts to sell oil to Standard Oil or contracts to build uh, uh, tankers, and of course, all of it bogus, all of it forgeries. Um, but it was all part of uh, of selling. I mean, he's selling a dream. He's selling a dream that I'm uh, this wealthy multimillionaire, and you know, I'm so generous that I'm going to let you in on this good thing. Mm. And, and, uh, and after wait. a few drinks, I guess people really thought they were in on a good thing. <laughs> I guess so, after they had a couple of drinks. Um, maybe it's a, a small point. I must confess I haven't got that far in the book yet, but um, Dean Job is a journalism professor up in uh, Canada, and you think, well, I mean, he probably just took this on as a project. But apparently uh, Koretz had some connection to Nova Scotia, where you live? Well, I'll, I'll just take the story this far, that, uh, uh, of course, uh, this couldn't go on forever. And even though him finding oil means he gets more investors, he just has to pay more out, and he can't convince everyone to take worthless stock. So about 1923, uh, his health is starting to fail, and it's just getting harder and harder to sustain this this con. Uh, some of his key investors decide, 
not surprisingly, well, they'd like to go to Panama and tour these facilities they've heard so much about. Mm. So Leo sees this as his chance to finally uh, break free. So he uh, encourages them to go. He sees them off. He has brazen enough that on those train platform, as he sees them off, he said, you know, I'm glad you're going. You'll be surprised. Well, of course, <laughs> yes. about a week later, they're, they're not only surprised, they realize they've been duped. But by then, Leo's disappeared. And after sort of laying low in New York for a couple of months, he develops a new name, a new persona as a wealthy, retired uh, businessman who indulges his love of literature. And he shows up in Nova Scotia, my province, on the East Coast, uh, renovates a, a, a remote lodge into sort of a great Gatsby pleasure palace and lives uh, an incredible, decadent life here in uh, Nova Scotia. And that's where I finally found uh, this wonderful story that's, uh, that's got this Nova Scotia connection, but this also this unknown, untold story of uh, Chicago history and, uh, and American swindling. Did he bring his wife and children with him? He abandoned them totally. I mean, the man was a cad. He turned out he'd had mistresses in Chicago, and uh, when he got here, he basically seems to have chased every young woman he could. Uh, so uh, he left his whole family, uh, uh, not destitute, because some of them were pretty well off, but they lost so much in this. Uh, they... Uh, he tried to give them what would be millions of dollars now, saying to them before he fled that this was dividends on their uh, stock he'd sold and he wanted to share it with them. The minute they found out it was a con, because none of them knew, they gave it back. So that was arguably, some of that was their investment. Uh, but they uh, they took those losses, and of course his wife was uh, was devastated to find out that the man that she thought had, that she thought she was set for life as the wife of a wealthy oil baron found out that she'd been living a lie without knowing it all those years. In fact, one little part of the con, um, you, uh, you write that Koritz frequently took other women to lunch, other married uh, women who were married, and everybody knew that, and they didn't think much of it, and the fact that he was uh, charming and yada yada. But at least with one of the women, he, you know, and I don't think it was a mistress, he, he took her to lunch and and he said, well, you know, this looks really bad. You should get your husband to invest or else, you know, I'll spread the word that, you know, you and I are lovers. Well, he uh, that's that's one of many stories. Uh, he certainly doted on the, the wives and the girlfriends of his uh, of his investors. Uh, his doting did seem to get a little extreme, I guess, for want of a better word. But certainly, he it was part of the charm offensive he brought to everything he did. You know, he uh, and he did. It, it's pretty clear that either by almost blackmail, as you just mentioned in this one example, or just simply he would uh, use uh, the wives of his investors to uh, break down any resistance they might have to to further ingratiate himself with people. Was he ever brought to justice? Well, he lives quite a wonderful life here in uh, Nova Scotia under this new name. Meanwhile, there's a, an international manhunt uh, being led out of Chicago. One of the interesting parallels I found as I was doing my research was this fellow Robert Crow, who emerges in the 1920s as the uh, state's attorney of, of Cook County, who had come up with a very uh, shady uh, resume uh, to be a political success to an elected office like this in um, 
in Chicago at the time, you had to have access to underworld figures, to thugs who could patrol the uh, ballot boxes and make sure your voters got out and others didn't. So there was a holy alliance between organized crime and politics at the time, and Robert Crowe really epitomized that. He becomes the man who's committed to finding this absconded swindler, and as coincidence would have it, he actually knew Leo Koritz. They had uh, they had uh, practiced law as young men together at the same blue chip firm in Chicago, and had parted ways. But uh, I found very much the uh, sort of rise of of uh, Robert Crowe in politics really paralleled this rise in uh, in crime of uh, of Leo Koritz. Mm. Well, did he ever catch him? Well, Leo is tripped up in Nova Scotia, and uh, uh, there's so many delicious twists and turns and bizarre happenings that lead to his arrest and his ultimate uh, uh, <clears throat> bringing him before the courts. But yes, he is tripped up in Nova Scotia, and, uh, just by chance, and uh, does go back to Chicago to uh, face justice, and is ultimately pleads guilty and gets a term of up to 10 years in uh, Joliet Prison, uh, Illinois State Prison. Um, but concocts a way to, I guess, put it this way, to uh, perhaps defraud or cheat justice as uh, as adeptly as he'd uh, defrauded all those investors. Mm. And yeah, I think people with Bernie Madoff are, are, you know, maybe waiting for him to be more repentant or something like that. But he's just serving time in prison, where apparently he's lionized by the other inmates. Did um, Koretz ever? Um, you know, say say I'm sorry? Well, belatedly. I mean, one would think if he was truly remorseful, he wouldn't have skipped town. Um, he did say that he just he knew the crash was coming and he wanted to get away. He abandoned his wife and children. After he's caught, he makes some noises about how he was going to go back and face justice. He wanted to set an example for his young son, who by this time would have nothing to do with him. Um, but he wasn't very good at being remorseful because he did make it clear that, in, to his mind and to his, for whatever defense it was worth, he did say that a lot of people had basically clamored to get in. He even claimed that uh, I didn't even sell any shares. They sold themselves. Everyone else jumped on the bandwagon. He almost tried to portray himself as a bit of a victim of this whole bubble he'd created which is ludicrous in one way, uh, or maybe in all ways, but it still underlined the point that all of these investors had really clamored to get on board, and Leo had been happy to take their money, but they had been just as happy to give it to him. So it created a little, uh, it muddied the legal waters a bit, and uh, it certainly didn't absolve them. But it was interesting that, uh, you know, there wasn't a lot of, of true remorse there. In fact, he's when he's questioned uh, in court when he comes back, he's reminded of a, a clergyman and a, and a widow who had lost their life savings. And he shot back, well, they were two of the people that hounded me the most to get in. <laughs> to get in. But there uh, were there people who were ruined by, by this, you know, financially speaking? Quite a few of his victims were fairly well off. I mean, certainly the the the, core, the extended Corrette's family uh, was devastated and, and embarrassed, and for generations his name was taboo in the family uh, for understandable reasons. Um, quite a few of his friends uh, they absorbed the blows. Um, but more than 200 people came forward in um, a bankruptcy proceeding, and there was enough proceeds to give them 
uh, a modest uh, quarter to a third back on their dollar, uh, but very good evidence that there were hundreds uh, of others who were just too mortified, uh, uh, solid businessmen, bankers, people who should have known better and just could not put up with the kind of... Uh, of uh, drubbing that the reputations of investors were taking in the press. I mean, people were belittled and and uh, vilified in the press for being so stupid to mm-hmm. have uh, bought into this con, to this crazy dream of Panamanian oil. Did he die in jail? Well, he did, and that's those circumstances I'll leave for uh, in spoiler sure. alert territory. But he does find a way to uh, to not serve out his sentence. I said, and arguably cheat justice uh, as well as cheating investors. Well, it's a fascinating uh, tale, the story of Leo uh, Koretz, uh, and uh, Dean Job is the one who uh, puts it all together in uh, his uh, new book about um, Koretz called Empire of Deception, the incredible story of a master swindler who seduced a city and captivated uh, the nation. The book's uh, out now. I imagine uh, doing pretty well, uh, in, especially in light of the uh, connection to Bernie Madoff. Well, it, uh, it, it remains, it's amazing that it's a, it's a cautionary tale from the 20s that, could, that, that we still need the caution for, I guess for one of a better way of putting it. Billions are still lost worldwide in Ponzi schemes. We just heard about a huge one in China. They're huge in India. They're still happening almost every day. You see some report of a new one exposed or going through the court system in Canada or the United States. So um, it, is, it is something, it's a story that's very much a product of the 20s, but still uh, speaks to the, the, the gullibility of, of, of people who um still willing to, to uh, believe in a someone who purports to be a financial guru who has the secret to making um, easy money. Well, fascinating uh, talking with you, uh, Dean Job. He's a professor in uh, Nova Scotia, University of uh, King's College, a journalism professor, lives in Wolfville, uh, Nova Scotia. I must confess, I've never been to Nova Scotia, uh, but I've always wanted to go. You know, it's not that, you know, relatively <laughs> well, speaking, not that far from us. More here than fugitives from American justice, I will, uh, I will assure people. <laughs> but, uh, no, you'll have to come visit us. We're not that far from, uh, from the East Coast, and... Uh, uh, it's wonderful here, especially in the summers. If I could, just maybe uh, ask you about a previous book, which deals specifically with uh, Nova Scotia, but also with America, The Cajuns, A People's Story of Exile and Triumph from uh, uh, 2005. It's, tell us quickly about that one. Well, uh, the uh, the Acadians um, were a group of French-speaking uh, settlers who uh, settled in, in what's now Nova Scotia, was then called uh, Acadia. Um, it's in the uh, 1600s and, and mid-1700s, and uh, there were tens of thousands of them here, well settled. But this was a really contested area, uh, the French and Indian Wars and, and other wars between Britain and France for, uh, for uh, the, the uh, uh, control of North America. And the Acadians really got caught in the middle. They end up under British rule. And in one of these wars, an extreme measure of expelling them all from Nova Scotia is taken. They're treated like a fifth column that will side with the French, even though they tried to be neutral. And they were scattered throughout the eastern seaboard and as far away as France and England as refugees or prisoners of war. 
But these people eventually uh, founded what, the Cajun culture of Louisiana, and in fact, Cajun is simply the southern United States way of saying Acadian, Cajun. Mm -hmm. And uh, so my book really uh, uh, documents the whole history of that experience, but how the Acadians, uh, both who have returned to Canada, have become a vibrant uh, culture and community in Canada, and also how that set the seeds for the uh, the vibrant Cajun culture of uh, of Louisiana and the southern United States. And I note, apparently, you uh, you market the book with the title "The Cajuns: A People's Story of Exile and Triumph in the USA," but in Canada, it's called "The Acadians." That's more properly what's set up in Canada. Well, that's right. I mean, that's that's the word. But as I said, uh, they're one and the same, and and it's it's amazing actually the 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 parallels of of these two uh, cultures. Uh, really uh which which one would think given this brutal uh, uh disruption of being cast into exile would these cultures would be destroyed but they have survived uh, uh, just as the cajun culture has survived within america and the acadian culture as a, as a small minority has survived here in uh, in canada mostly dean job thanks for joining us we're just out of time you've been listening to the historians podcast i'm bob cudmore